Uh, today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 35. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able, with 10,000 men, to oppose one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Good morning, St. Clair. Good to be with you this morning. Um, great Sunday to be here. If you're new, my name is Will Albert, and I'm one of the interns here at St. Clair. Um, we're so glad to have you joining us this Sunday morning, especially after that great Raptors win. I know you, so, yeah, that's worth a response. I know some people are probably sick of hearing that if you're not a sports person, but I'm sorry, 24 years of supporting a sucky team is like, <laughs> You know, it's worth for celebration, okay? We're finally going to the championship, so hopefully, I don't know, Golden State can go down. Um, <laughs> um, as you can see on the slide behind us, we're back into the parables of Luke. And if you've been with us for any number of time over the last year, we've been looking at various different parables in the Gospel of Luke. And the reason we've been looking at the parables is because we see that Roughly 35% of Jesus' words we find in the Synoptic Gospels are spoken in the form of parable. And that's pretty significant in, in the fact that if we don't understand the parables and the form that the parables appear and how Jesus speaks in parables, we won't be able to actually understand what it is that Jesus is trying to teach us and instruct us. And so we've really wanted to take some time to highlight the different parables. That's why we've looked at the parable series. And before I begin, I want to kind of preface what I'm about to say with a couple opening statements. The first I want to say is I've been coming to St. Clair for just over a year now um, with the internship. And I, I truly just want to say that I've come to love this community. I've come to love the people within the community, building relationships, eating in your homes, um, getting to know your kids. And this morning when I preached this message, this message that seems to be quite challenging, it challenged me throughout the week as I was preparing it, I want to say that this is actually a message of love. This is not actually a message of challenge. It's a message of love first before we get to that challenge. And love is my primary motivation this morning. For the married couples in the room, you know that love can be difficult and oftentimes in the Western world, we can confuse true love with infatuation, with acceptance. You see, acceptance can be compromising, but true love, 
agape love is self-sacrificing. And so as much as I would love to come up here and preach this awesome message and then get a bunch of handshakes and get a bunch of pats on the back afterwards about a good message that I spoke, I think the loving thing for me to do would be to speak the truth in love this morning. And I was struck when I was looking at the Gospels how often Jesus did this when he spoke to the crowds. He was unapologetic because he knew that the good news was actually good news. He didn't have to alter it or tamper it with rewards because Jesus is the reward. And we can't get the kingdom without the king. I think that's super important for us as we start. So I want you to know that love is my motivation for speaking this message this morning. And the second thing I want to start off by saying, and I said this last time I spoke, but conviction and condemnation are two completely different ideas. And oftentimes it's easy to confuse those two subjects. You see, condemnation is when we're burdened by the weight and the guilt of sin, and it causes us to be stagnant. We can't actually move because we're trapped in that place. But conviction, on the other hand, is the work of the Holy Spirit. As we were singing this morning, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. And the Holy Spirit leads us to repentance and leads us to maturity. And so if you feel a nudge or a stirring of the Holy Spirit by anything that I say this morning, don't push that back, but actually lean into that because that leads to change into repentance. Okay, so let's get into the the sermon for this morning. You know, when I was thinking about the cost and, and how I was going to tie this all together. I was reminded of an experience that I had when I was in university. Um, I didn't grow up being an outdoorsman. My family, no, nobody in my family likes the outdoors, but for some reason I just, yeah, I just developed this love of the outdoors. And I remember I was in university and my friends, um, who I knew really well, they said, hey, Will, have you ever seen this movie called A River Runs Through It? And I was like, no, I haven't. And they were like, it's an incredible movie. It's got a young Brad Pitt. It's about fly fishing in Montana. And I was like, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. Okay, let's do this. So we go to their house and we watch this movie. And at the end of the movie, the two brothers come together and they catch this trophy-sized trout. And it's like massive. And they're screaming, they're jumping. And they've just caught the catch of their life. And I am like so inspired. I've got like a slow rolling tear dripping down my face. I'm like, yes, this is what I want. So the next day I go out to the local tackle shop and I buy a fishing rod. I buy all the, all the gear, the line, the baits, everything. And I'm like, okay, I'm determined. And that night I go to the, to the river that was in our college town and it's like nine o'clock at night. It's pitch black. I get there and I'm like so caught up in this romantic idea of how great it's going to be when I catch this massive fish. And then I realize I literally know nothing about fishing. Like I'm standing there in the dark in the sticks trying to like hold the rod in between my legs and fish the line through the little guides. And then when I finally get it to the bait, I realize I don't know how to tie a knot. So I'm like, great, now what do I do? So I pull my phone out and I'm trying to like YouTube it and I have no service because I'm like in the middle of nowhere. And then I think like after about an hour of like fumbling through this messy process, I just gave up. I was like, you know what? Whatever. I am done. I am done with that. (laughs) 
the funny thing about this story was that I was so captivated in the moment, I was so inspired that I didn't actually weigh the cost of what it would take to become a master fisherman. I wanted the results of catching this massive fish, but I didn't want to put the work in, and I didn't actually sit down and think, what is this going to take? What is this going to look like for me to actually practice and persevere? And I think in the same way, Jesus is issuing this same challenge to each of us. Count the cost. Do you know what you're getting yourself into? Because a life with me is very rich, but it's also very costly. Before we get to our text this morning, we're in Luke chapter 14, but our parable is verses 25 to 35, which is the end of Luke chapter 14. I want to take just a few moments to highlight what has happened within chapter 14 so we understand a little bit of the context in which we're reading our scripture. We see that at the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus is, dis- is invited into one of the Pharisees' house for a meal. And this is an obvious setup because as soon as Jesus gets in, they have a man who has got swelling all over his body and they kind of stuff that man in front of Jesus. And so obviously Jesus has compassion for this man and he heals him. The problem is, is that this is on the Sabbath and so the Pharisees are waiting to jump down Jesus' throat about healing on the Sabbath, doing work on the Sabbath. Jesus offers some rhetorical questions which the Pharisees can't answer and then begins to go into some parables Firstly, he goes into the parable of the wedding feast, and he talks about a wedding feast that is held, and various guests come to sit down. And essentially in that story, Jesus tells them that all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus then goes on to talk about the parable of the great banquet. I think Matt spoke on this. And we see a man hosts a great banquet, And he invites these people to come. But yet all of the people come back with various excuses. One of them says, I have a field and I need to go see it. Another one says, I've bought five oxen and I need to go examine them. And another one says, I have a wife and I cannot come. And in that moment, the one who invited all of them says, invite everyone, the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. And all of those who were previously invited shall not taste of my banquet. And that brings us to our passage for today in verse 26. We see that Jesus has since left the Pharisee's house and he's traveling to Jerusalem. And there are great crowds that are accompanying him. It's important that we notice that word in the first verse, accompanying him, my version says. You see, These people are not actually following Jesus. They haven't committed anything to him. They're just accompanying him because of what Jesus can do. Jesus has amassed a certain level of fame. And these people are looking at Jesus and saying, wow, there's miraculous things going on. He's healing. He's got quite a following. Why don't we just go alongside Jesus, not give anything over to him, but see what he can do for us? It's interesting when Jesus calls the disciples in Luke chapter 5, the first disciples, when he calls Peter, James, and John, and they have that miracle where they cast the net out for another time, and they're hauling in fish, so much so that the nets are about to break. The disciples actually say, or the Bible, I should say, actually says that the disciples left everything they had to follow Jesus. You see, being a disciple by nature 
means that we break with our origin and accept a future that is counter to common sense sometimes. And yet these crowds have not given Jesus anything. And so Jesus begins to be weary of this massive following that he has. And he turns to them and offers this statement. This is what verse 26 says. It says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Pretty harsh words from Jesus if we read this literally. And maybe pretty confusing also if we read this literally. I think some of you are probably going through your mind thinking, what is Jesus saying? What is he getting at here? Because this seems to be contradictory to what I know about the rest of the Bible. Here are some examples. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. What is Jesus talking about? He told us to hate your father and mother. Or what about Ephesians 6, 4? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Hating your children? Or what about Ephesians 5, 28? In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. We see a direct opposite there, love and hate. And so what is Jesus getting at? I think what Jesus is using, what, or sorry, I should say, what Jesus is getting at by using that strong word is that he's not contradicting the validity of those other scriptures because the list goes on and on. What Jesus is actually doing is he's simply making the point that if you are going to follow after me, I have to be first. I have to be first. It's not that those things aren't important. Those things are very valuable to us. But Jesus has to be first. And that's the first point that I want to make today. If you're taking notes, um, this is the first point. Is Jesus first in my life? Is Jesus first in my life? You see, Jesus gives himself fully over to us in our relationship. He's fully committed to us. And if we decide that we have to follow after him, we cannot have multiple loves. We have to give ourselves over fully to him. We've traded in our old lives in exchange for a new life with him. And I said this earlier, but we can't have the kingdom without the king. You see, ultimately, these relationships that we've built on earth, they're temporary, but a life following after Jesus is eternal. And I think what he's saying with this challenge, first and foremost, Am I first? And so as we begin to wrestle through these questions, I'm going to go through a couple different points and offer some rhetorical questions. And hopefully these questions can offer you a chance to reflect and ask yourself these very questions that I had to wrestle with this week because it was, it was really a challenge and a, a helpful reminder. Verse 27 goes on to say this, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Those of you who are astute enough to notice, Jesus actually hasn't been crucified yet at this point in the gospel. And so we see that Jesus is foreshadowing his coming death. He's saying, this is the road that I'm about to walk. And the funny thing about Jesus is he doesn't ask anything of us that he isn't willing to commit to himself. You see, we get to model after him because he has done it first. The cross itself 
was actually fixed. The vertical portion of the cross was fixed in the ground. And the condemned person would actually have to take the horizontal part and yoke it on their shoulders and carry it the full distance of where they were to where they would be crucified. As they were carrying it, they would be ridiculed and they would be beaten. And it was an excruciating process. And I think by using this picture of the cross, we see that the cross represents submission to the will of the Father. You see, Jesus, in the moment that he was about to be crucified, that he was carrying the cross, he had the power and authority to say no, but he chose to submit to the will of the Father and desire his, deny his own fleshly desires. And I think that is what he is asking the crowds and asking of us if we are going to follow him, that we must submit ourselves to his will and deny our own desires. But what does that look like practically today? Because most of us are not well acquainted with crucifixion. So what does that look like in our modern world? Well, I think there are three ways that we can look at this. Approval, appetite, and ambition. For those of you that know the author Mike Breen, he talks a lot about this. But these three things are usually what we seek to fulfill our lives with. And most of us would fall into one of these three categories. Either we're seeking the approval of others, we're, we're, ap- we're hungry, we want pleasures or experiences that this world has to offer, or ambition, seeking success and motivation. And so I think maybe as we ask ourselves these questions, this might also tease out how we can deny our own desires practically. Is Jesus still enough if I am not approved of? Is Jesus still enough if I am unsuccessful? Or is Jesus still enough if I cannot experience certain pleasures this world has to offer? You see, we have to weigh the cost. Is Jesus worth it for us? Is it enough? The scripture goes on to move into the parable, our first parable for today. And verse 29 says this, or sorry, verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. You see, I think, This picture is of an architect, someone planning to build a structure. And he's saying, if you are going to stake your life on following after me, make sure you sit down and weigh the cost. It's interesting the contrast between the types of verbs that were used previously and the verb of sitting and contemplating. We have very active verbs, strong verbs, hate and carry. And yet now we have this idea of pausing and reflecting. And Jesus is saying, If you are going to stake your life for following after me, make sure you've thought about it because it will be difficult. Jesus makes this very clear in other areas of the gospel. This isn't the only place that Jesus stresses this point. In Matthew 8, 20, he says, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. He's like, guys, if you're following me, we're homeless tonight. Then he says this, 
John 15, 18. If the world hates you, meaning the disciples, know that it hated me first. Or how about Matthew 10, 16? Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You see, the cost of following Jesus is high, so be prepared to pay the cost. I think within that also not to forget that the sheep are not overtaken because we have a shepherd. And so I know there's challenging, but we're gaining a life with Jesus. I really want to stress that point. Even though it's challenging, we are gaining a life with Jesus. The parable continues, and Jesus stresses this point again, but in a nuanced way, a slightly different way. He says it this way in verse 31, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet who comes against him with 20,000? I think the lesson of the, se- the second example is pretty clear. If we want to go out with Christ against God's enemies, we must do so wisely. Again, we see this idea of sitting down and weighing the costs. You see, power without wisdom is useless. And Jesus is fighting against an emotional response. Emotion is great. Inspiration is great. But we have to fix our hope in something concrete. We have to choose. Jesus invites us into this life. He doesn't force us to choose this life. He invites us in, but he's saying, make sure that when you choose, you know what you're getting yourself into. And this brings me to my second point for today. Is Jesus worth the cost? Is Jesus worth the cost? Sorry. You know, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a time in my own life where I fully didn't commit to Jesus. I fully didn't weigh the cost of what it was like to be a disciple. As many of you know, I was a gymnast for many years and a high-level competitive gymnast. And it was my belief that God had put me on this earth to compete and go to the Olympics. And that was like my dream. That was everything. I was consumed with that. And I remember I had been training my whole life for this moment, and I finally qualified for the World Championships. This was in 2011. And I went to the World Championships expecting and hoping that I was going to make the Olympics because that was the qualification. And the morning of the competition, I was training, and I was getting ready, and I was preparing, and there was about maybe 30 minutes to an hour before I was about to compete, the biggest stage of my life. And I ran down the vault runway, as I always did, and I flipped, and I took off the vault, And as I flipped in the air, I got confused, and I hit the ground with my left leg straight. And I fractured my tibia, the bone in your shin, right below my knee. And I remember in that moment, I was so angry with God. I was frustrated with God. And I said, God, I never thought I would have to give this up too. You've asked so much of me already. Why this too? And I was bitter and I was angry. I didn't weigh the cost of what it might look like to follow Jesus. I didn't think that that was off limits. I was like, God, I'll serve you up until this point, but don't take that. You see, in that moment, I didn't actually weigh the cost. I didn't know that Jesus was everything. I had idols in my life and I had built them up to be ahead of God. And I spent a lot of years being angry and bitter with God, walking away from God, being foolish, living foolishly. 
and I can't take that time back. But what I can do is use that as a teaching example and say, make sure if you are following after Jesus, you've weighed the cost and you know what it means to follow Jesus because he needs to be first in our lives. And hopefully my foolishness can be an example to you of how not to, to act. Verse 33 says this. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Okay. <laughs> and with Jesus, Jesus with the haymaker in the 12th round, right? Gut punch. Um, <laughs> first, we have family dynamics. Then we have denying ourselves, counting the cost. And then we have possessions. Jesus goes after the last kind of major idol. And this seems to be particularly difficult in our Western culture, this idea of possessions and wealth, because many of us have possession, have, have wealth. And I think the reason Jesus is getting at this is because wealth often offers self-sufficiency. And as we mentioned before, Jesus when we commit to Jesus and we follow after him, we are submitting ourselves to his will. And sometimes when we have too much, it's easy to say, why would I need God? Because I can rely on my own strength. I can do it all on my own. I find it interesting that the disciples gave up everything that they had, left their means of work, left their families to follow after Jesus because he meant so much to them. And lastly, the last thing I want to talk about, and the last section that we see within this is verse 34 to 35, and it says this, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away, and he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I think we see this as a warning. Jesus is warning us and he's saying that if we are not committed to Christ, if we choose this life to follow after him and we're not committed, we may become overtaken by the pleasures of this world. You see, there's so much to offer us. And so we need to make sure that when we choose, we know where our hearts lie. We know who we love. That's super important, and Jesus stresses this by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He wants to know, are people just around for what I can do for them, or are they listening? Are they seeking after me to be in relationship with me? And the third and final point I want to make, the other element of this last section, talking about salt, is am I making people thirsty? Am I making people thirsty? The funny thing about salt is when you consume it, it makes you thirsty. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever seen someone who's on fire for God and who's chasing after him wholeheartedly, it actually is super infectious. It makes you want to chase after Jesus in the same way that they do. And you may see struggles that they go through. You may see difficulties and hardships, things that they have to sacrifice. But you also see the rewards in a rich and full life of following after Jesus. And so we ask ourselves this question this morning. If we're following after Jesus, is my life worth imitating? Am I making people thirsty for more of Jesus? 
I'm about to close, and I know that this message is weighty. When I was thinking about preaching this message, I actually didn't want to preach it, and I felt the Lord telling me that I should, and I didn't know why. Um, But I don't want this message to come across as another list of things that you should be doing because it could easily become that. But actually, this is not just a list of things that you should be doing, but this is why you get to be doing these things. Because a life with Jesus, although it means temporary sacrifice, although it means a sacrifice on earth, it affords you riches that we cannot even imagine. A life with Jesus is more fulfilling than anything this world has to offer. And I can't stress that point enough. The things that you're sacrificing are temporary, but the things that you're gaining are eternal. And I thought it would be helpful as I posed many rhetorical questions to take a moment of silence before we enter into communion to ask ourselves, to examine our hearts and ask ourselves where we're at with Jesus. Maybe for some of you, the application this morning is you've never committed to Jesus. You've never fully decided that I want to live a life being a disciple to following after Jesus. And maybe today, as you take communion, you decide that I want to live a life following after Jesus. I know that it's costly. I know that it's difficult, but I know that there's great reward. And then maybe for some of us, I would venture maybe most of us, it's an examining of our heart and asking ourselves, is Jesus still my first love? Is he first? Or are there things that get in the way? Are there things that compete for my first love? Is Jesus worth the cost? Is he really worth the cost of sacrificing these temporary things? And am I making others around me thirsty? Am I making them thirsty for more of Jesus?